The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is living, that it changes us, that it reaches down into the very depths of who we are to extract those things that we have kept hidden. Lord, we thank you that your word brings life where there is death. We thank you that uh, this message is meant to bring life to us, Lord. We ask you for eyes to see, ears to hear, as Scott brings this message to us, that we would be changed, Lord, that we would look into the mirror, we would see who we are, and that we would remember as we walk away. We thank you, Lord, for the miracle of your blood, that it cleanses us and allows us to enter into your throne room and receive grace. We just ask your anointing upon Scott this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Nancy. Good to see all of you. You know, if I were to ask you, or if you were to ask somebody who's never gone to church, or if they have never read the Bible, name a Bible verse, I bet they'd think maybe of this one. There's a few that people probably would be able to pull out. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Somebody would say that. And I think this passage gets examined wrong a lot, so we want to try to do our best job at getting through this today. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon, is very challenging to us in so many different ways, and it's because of the fact that lots of times we hear an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and we start applying our own meaning to it. And we think that applies to my own justice system between me and the people who might offend me or knock out my teeth or whatever it is I'm thinking of. But Jesus has something else that He wants to say about it. He wants to explain it better for us. What Jesus is not doing is negating the Old Testament law, but He's told us already in our series that, and in the sermon that He has come to fulfill the law. And so we've been talking about this with this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' people are supposed to be keeping to the spirit of the law, not just the interpretation of the words that fit whatever their own agenda is. And Jesus is actually quoting from the Old Testament. It's called the law of retribution, lex talionis, for those of you who want to know that. Verse 38, you have heard it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. He's quoting from Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of the law in your Old Testament. But the thing is, is this is not a verse that is there to help you establish your own personal justice. It's judicial. It's instruction for the courts. All right, this is for courts to determine how do, you, how do you actually do justice when people come to you and they've, got, they've been wronged by somebody else. What do you do to that person? How do you have recompense? How, what is justice? How does it work? And this is how the courts were there to minister. 
The idea, this is the whole idea of justice, is that the scales of lady justice, right, is supposed to be that the punishment fits the crime and the crime fits the punishment. And that's what we want to do. We want to weigh it out. And God gave this to His people to prevent something. He wanted to prevent excessive retaliation, which is something that we humans are prone to do when we are wronged. Is that not right? I mean, if, you, if somebody wrongs you, somebody knocks out your incisor, do you say, well, okay, uh, then I'm going to pull out your incisor. They knock out a molar, you say, oh, I'll take out one of your molars then. Molar for molar. That's how it works. That's not actually what we do. Usually we escalate things when there is retaliation. You don't get an eye for an eye. That's not what you do. You become the Corleones and the Barzinis, and you go to the mattresses, and you want to incinerate that other person, and then they want to incinerate you, and it gets back and back and back, and we see this at every level of whatever kind of relationship there is. We see this with our little kids. I have two boys. They're 10 and 8. This is exactly what happens. Suddenly, somebody calls somebody a little name, then the other one's getting punched in the eye, then the other one is being thrown down to the floor. Eventually, somebody is coming to my feet to confess what has gone on, probably because I have said, what's going on up there? Well, what he did to me, and the other one's like, uh-uh. Sometimes somebody is the one who did wrong. And you know what that person usually says? That little boy looks at me and says, kill him, dad. Well, eventually what happens when we do this is we burn everything down, and it happens in our marriages, and it happens in our churches, it happens in our companies, it happens in our countries. This is a struggle that Christians have. God did not want that to happen in Israel. He did not want people to have vendettas. And the whole idea is that when you are hurt and somebody's wronged you, the court will settle it. And you want it to be that way. The Proverbs writer writes this, Proverbs 17, 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Here's the idea. What happens when a dam gets a hole? How much water comes out? All of it. And this is often what happens in our angry. When we get angry, it's often like this. We don't stop at justice. We just want to incinerate, and then everybody loses. Nobody wins. You ever meet people who always have to get their way and always be in control? Those kinds of people behind them is, in their wake, is destruction and hurt, and they just keep moving forward with a trail of destruction behind them. And of course, that's everyone else's fault, not theirs. This is not how we are to be. This was not to occur. God's people needed to be a people of equity, of putting other people first, of pointing people to God in the process, because what God wants is everybody to be saved including your enemy, including the person that you just want to incinerate, the person you're thinking of right now as we talk about this. And maybe somebody's thinking about you. And what do you want? You want grace. God also wants His people to be people of wisdom, and this is not always easy. But wisdom is something that considers the long-term consequence of our actions. See, foolishness is very often in the moment, but wisdom lasts. Today, we want to take a look at our response to an attack or an injustice that might be done against us. And we're going to look at the response of wisdom and the response of Jesus and the response of faith. So first, let's talk about wisdom for a minute. The intent of the law was to inhibit wrath and promote peace. It's the spirit of the law. In verse 39, it says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile with them, 
Go two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let me ask you something. Are these contradictory ideas? I mean, do we have a different God of the Old Testament who says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and then one of the New Testament that just says, nah, don't worry about that. Jesus is reminding us that we should know and apply what the intent is of the law, that the purpose of this law is about return to equity, but also the peace and the process of it of bringing people back to a right relationship with God wherever they are. And one of the things that Jesus is addressing here is how we respond whenever it is that we find ourselves oppressed or when we find ourselves being the little guy, when we don't have equal power. That was the situation for the average Jewish person who was listening to this at first. Now, there's a hard passage because it seems to many people to be very impractical, even masochistic, right? An invitation to, for Christians to be bullied or for criminals to beat up on us so we won't fight back. And some people have understood this passage to mean that we should practice pacifism or in some way say it's better to surrender everything and go through life naked than it is to stand up for our rights. And the worst criticism is that some have thought that we are being taught by Jesus to acquiesce to evil, which couldn't be further from the truth. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, whenever you interpret any historical narrative, which is what the Gospels are, you have to think about the context of the writer and who they're writing to at the time and what the circumstances were. Jesus was addressing primarily a Jewish community that was under the rule of the Roman government, the Roman Empire. And these people were poor. Most of them were slaves. Most of them were regularly oppressed by society, and they were under this Roman occupation, which was not friendly to them. And so comments about being slapped or being sued for clothing because that's all you have or being forced to carry the equipment of a soldier for a mile, those things are all very relevant to them. How many of you have been asked by somebody in the military to carry their stuff for a mile? Anyone? Nobody. Shocking. If you're in the military today, ask someone to carry your stuff out to the car. See what they do. <clears throat> but to these people who are hearing this, all of those things were very relevant. They were happening to them right then. Jesus says to turn the other cheek. I want you to notice something clearly there in verse 39. What it says is, Hit them on the right cheek. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. <clears throat> Here's the thing. I want you to turn to the uh, person next to you. You wouldn't be hitting somebody with your left hand, by the way. There's no Rocky Balboas back then because your left hand is unclean. You did everything with your right hand, okay? I want you to turn to the person next to you. Open your hand like this. This is a slap. It's not a punch, Okay? <laughs> Just turn them and pull your arm back like this. I'm not going to have you follow through with it. I just want to show you something, okay? I thought about bringing up a volunteer who I know really well and go, okay, your right hand, and now try to imagine yourself hitting their right cheek. How would you do it? You got to backhand it like this. You can't. All right, don't do it. What does it mean when you hit somebody with your right hand on the right cheek like this? It's more than just a hit. It's degrading. It's the type of thing that you do to somebody who you think of as less than you. And it's an interesting thing to see it this way. This is the kind of slap that demonstrates power. It's demeaning. It's a slap of humiliation. You don't hit somebody who is appear that way. That isn't how you would probably do it if you were going to do it. 
And that day, there were lots of fines, actually, for just hitting people in a normal way. If you were peers, if you slugged somebody with a fist, it was a four-day wage fine that the courts would give on you. If you slapped them like this, it was 200 days wage. But if you hit them with the back of your hand like this, it was 400. It's because it's a more serious offense. It offends the character. Now, however, it was not very punishable if it was done by a person in authority to a slave, or in this case, if it were done by a Roman soldier to a Jewish person. They may not get any punishment at all. You were just at their mercy. And one of the things that Jesus was talking about in this passage is this kind of act of violence. It's addressing a problem of not having equality or power. He's speaking to Jews, and when He tells them, He says, if anyone strikes you or wants to sue you or forces you to go one mile, these people were subjected to these kinds of indignities all the time. It was constant in that society, and they were forced to stifle their outrage and anger because if they just got angry and fought back, they'd be in a lot worse trouble. They had very little or no rights. They didn't have a lot of choice. But there's an interesting thing that when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, that means that you turn this way. Now turn to your neighbor and take your right hand and try to hit them in a demeaning way on their, cheek, on their right cheek when that cheek is turned away from you. You can't do it. You have to change how you do it. I mean, you could do one of these, but it's not very impressive. <laughs> you have to suddenly become their peer. You've got to punch them or you've got to slap them the normal way. But it brings back some equality. Not that this is something you should be doing. All right? But what happens is, is that robs the striker of the power to humiliate. And it says, try again. I'm human just like you, and your status doesn't change the fact that we are equal as human beings. This would present enormous difficulty to the striker. And your point gets made. Now, this was not a way of avoiding more conflict. The striker might order the person to be flogged or something like that. But a point would have been made. And what happens here is the striker is suddenly forced to be on this equal footing and has to examine himself. What is it that I am doing here? What is it that this person is doing to me all of a sudden, not allowing me to do this? Now, this idea was already in practice with the Jews. It's something that wasn't even new to them, this whole thing. The, the writer Josephus is an ancient historian who wrote a lot about Jewish times and wrote about this specific time that Jesus was in. He wrote about Pontius Pilate, who was what Pontius Pilate was doing around A.D. 27-ish, a few years before Jesus started His ministry, Pontius Pilate comes to town, he's appointed, and what he starts doing is putting up statues in the Jewish areas and in the temple of Caesar. They were called Roman standards, these statues. Well, Jewish people didn't like it at all. They thought it was idolatry to have any kind of graven image of people, so they didn't want that in there. So what happened is, is these, the way he describes it is these people went to Pilate's headquarters to protest, and they had a sit-in for about six days. And finally, Pilate had enough. He sent in his soldiers, and this is what Josephus writes. He says, Pilate, after threatening to cut them down, what he wrote was that they, they surrounded them with three lines of soldiers, just overkill on the soldiers, and they all drew their swords. And that says this, Pilate, after threatening to cut them down, if they refused to admit Caesar's images, signaled to the soldiers to draw their swords. Thereupon, the Jews, as by concerted action, flung themselves in a body on the ground, extended their necks, and exclaimed that they were ready to die rather than transgress the law. Overcome with astonishment at such intense religious zeal, Pilate gave orders for the immediate removal of the standards from Jerusalem. These guys kind of already had the idea. We don't have any power at all. You want to pull your sword out? All right, cut my head off. Do it. Just do it. Can you imagine that? 
it changes. It changes how people respond. It changes how the people who are in this power look at the situation. You can imagine these soldiers looking at each other like, we're not going to have a fight? What are you talking about? And Pilate says, all right, forget it. We'll take the statues down. I don't understand these people. So these people were aware of what Jesus was talking about. And what Jesus is bringing in is the idea that these are these principles should be handled in small, even everyday situations. In verse 40, he talks about giving up your cloak, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Suing people was a popular way of oppressing the poor, in particular in that culture. For rich people, what you could do is just tax all of their income so they had no power and got them into a whole lot of debt. But for poor people who have nothing, all you could do was sue them for something. And since they didn't have much, you were mostly suing them for their clothing. And Jesus says, give them both. If they sue you for your shirt, your tunic, which is your, your main garment you'd be wearing, give them your coat also. And so what would happen is if you were in court and you were, had given up your shirt, your tunic, which was more than a shirt, probably went down to your knees, and then you gave them your cloak, which you would wear over it, you'd either be standing there wearing just your underwear, another piece of cloth you tied around, or you'd be wearing nothing in court with the guy suing you holding your tunic and your coat. Who is it who should be the most embarrassed in that situation? You see, it changes things, doesn't it? In that culture, it was actually uh, worse to be looking upon the naked person than it was to be the naked person. And suddenly, there's a great equalization happening here in that courtroom. The naked person is embarrassed, but he has changed the stakes. You now have everything of mine. Are you going to take my body too? That's all I have left. You can imagine how that forces people to take a look at themselves, at what they're doing. It forces the one doing the suing to look inward at themselves, to examine what they are doing, and all the onlookers have the same response. This is a wise response, and yet very hard to do. Verse 41, in the soldier, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The law said that you had to walk a mile. If a soldier gave you his stuff and said, you need to take this for a mile, you had to do it, one mile. But at one mile, you could drop it. You didn't have to go any further. That was the rule. Well, what happens if you walk another mile? You get to that mile marker, and the soldier says, okay, I'll take my stuff back. And you're like, no, no, it's fine. I'll carry it. What's the soldier doing? He's going to go crazy. Like, well, what are you doing? You don't have to do this. Why are you carrying my stuff? Why do you keep coming over here? Would you give me my stuff back? And suddenly, you've changed the dynamic of the entire relationship. And it forces the soldier to wonder what in the world his motives are for making you carry the stuff anyway. The soldier has to think about stuff himself. It makes him question what it is that he's doing. You see, our motive should not be about getting more back or getting any kind of thing back. Let the borrow borrow and the beggar have, it says. The reason you don't let people have your stuff is because you're worried that you're not going to get it back. You might be right, but let it happen anyway. Or you're worried that the beggar is just taking advantage of you. Fine. Beggars don't feel too good about begging. You see, what's happening here is Jesus is ultimately concerned about saving the lost, and it includes the oppressor, it includes the beggar, it includes the borrower, it includes the person suing you, it includes the person who's going to hit you. And it's never about protecting our turf. It's about that person's soul. Saving the lost is what Jesus' people need to be about. 
and not about their own stuff. So we need to respond in wisdom whenever we find ourselves on the wrong side of being unjust or the injustice side of injustice, when we find somebody taking advantage of us or somebody being mean to us. What's the wise thing to do? Well, the wise thing to do is to respond like Jesus as best we can. Jesus, Scriptures say, while being reviled, He did not revile in return. And it is so important that we understand that. Could you imagine Jesus is being teased, He's being spat upon, He's being beaten, and He turns around and He says, spitting back, I know you and I know where you're going when you die. We'd have a different opinion of Jesus if He was spitting back if he was shouting out insult for insult, if he was cutting people down. Instead, something amazing happens with Jesus. He brings something. He focuses evil back on those who are actually doing the evil. And he can do this in his silence. He is forbearing, which is a fruit of the Spirit. He is merciful, and he is accomplishing what the law is about. You see, vengeance is outlawed in the Bible, Old and New Testament. You are not to get vengeance. You are not to have personal payback. If your enemy is hungry, you feed him instead. If your enemy is thirsty, then you give him something to drink. The intent of the law is justice, not vengeance or escalation, but peace. Verse 43, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I want you to notice something here. And you probably will see this in any translation you're using uh, that was published after the 1700s. Love, your neighbor, is capitalized. And in different translations, and this one they go, and hate your enemy, but hate is not capitalized. Some translations bold, love your neighbor, but they don't bold, hate your enemy. Uh, others put uh, quotes around love your enemy, your neighbor, and not hate your enemy. And the reason why is because the first part, love your neighbor, Jesus is quoting what was said in the Scriptures. But the second part, it never says, hate your enemy, ever. There's no one who can say, it is written, hate your enemy. You can say, it is written, love your neighbor, but you can never say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And yet, this is what people were saying, and this is what people were beginning to interpret this law, eye for an eye, to mean. But this isn't it at all. You've heard it said, but you have not heard that it was written. But instead, what was happening very often in Israel is it was love your neighbor, but hate those who don't do you right. And for them, what they had done is create a situation of moral relational tennis. If they volley love, you volley love back. But if they volley hate, you volley hate back. And that was okay. That was the whole idea. Jesus says, no, this is not how it works in the kingdom of God. Verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, God's system is a little bit different. It's a lot different than ours, which it seems like you love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. But Jesus says, no. God sends the rain to rain on both, the lovers of God and the enemies of God. And he sends the sun to shine on both, the lovers of God and the enemies of God. Jesus prays for the guys who are driving the nails into him. He's not seen as weak in doing this. His executioner and the guy on Jesus' right agree, witnessing Jesus and how he went to his death, that he must be the Son of God. It was an incredible testimony because Jesus loved his enemies. Paul would write 
He was in prison, and there was a great earthquake in the book of Acts, and the prison doors opened, and the jailer was there, the jailer who had cuffed Paul and these guys, the jailer who had probably beaten him. The jailer wakes up, and all the doors are open, and the jailer is about to kill himself. And Paul says, no, wait, we're all here. We didn't leave. The jailer's response to that is, what must I do to be saved? They could have left. They could have had freedom. Instead, they didn't. They obeyed the law, and the jailer gets saved. When they came to arrest Jesus, Peter cuts off Malchus's ear, and Peter says, let's fight. And Jesus says, stop it. No more of this. We are going to be the good guys, and we're going to do things differently. And he heals Malchus's ear. I always find it interesting that we know Malchus's name. We don't get to know a lot of extra guys' names, right? Just a soldier. But Malchus, we get to know his name. I think it's because if your ear was cut off and some dude put it back on, that would change your life. I bet we get to meet Malchus one day. Who are you? I'm Malchus. Jesus fixed it. (laughs) Peter's standing there going, yep, fixed it. (laughs) You see, in doing this, the point is much greater that Jesus is making. It's much greater than our own dignity or preserving it. It's part of loving enemies for the sake of their souls. Because we should never be in a place as believers where we are satisfied with the number of people who are going to heaven. Where we just think, hey, that's enough. We should never be satisfied with somebody we know who doesn't know Jesus, that does not have a good place for their eternal destination just because they've been mean to us. Just because we don't like them very much or they don't like us for some reason. Jesus' accusers were forced to look inward and consider who Jesus was, and his goal was to redeem them, not to condemn them. Pilate himself had to wash his hands during, of the whole thing because he knew that arresting Jesus was unjust. Now, Jesus did suffer because he turned the other cheek, but his suffering was for a greater purpose. It was for our salvation, to do something that was right. And unfortunately, sometimes we do suffer, suffer when we have to stand for what is right. Most of the time in our culture, it's because people won't like us very much. But sometimes we have much greater suffering. But victory comes in the end when we do the wise thing. The civil rights march over the bridge in Selma without a parade permit is illegal. And it left the authorities two choices. They could either allow them to march, which would legitimize their protest, or they could forcibly stop them. They chose force with the fire hoses and was on television exposing their violence for all the world to see. And this was catastrophic to the white supremacist system. The people doing it suffered, but it revealed to the world the evil of this system. It was a major turning point. Was the suffering worth it? You bet it was. And we can do it in our own lives today. I had a friend in high school, his name was Jason. And uh, Jason was getting picked on, kind of bullied by a couple of guys. I never understood why. But most people, they'd fight back or they'd try to squirm out of it. This guy one time had Jason pinned to the wall, and he was pinching his neck like this underneath, just really tight, and pinching him, forcing him against the wall. Jason responds by telling jokes, just one joke after another. I mean, it was painful. And the most incredible thing happened as all of us standing around wondering what to do, how do we defend Jason against this big kid who's going to beat the tar out of the rest of us? We start laughing. Even the kid starts laughing. They ended up becoming friends. 
It diffused the whole thing. And they weren't enemies. They became friends. In Jason's way, he was turning the other cheek. He was saying, I'm not going to be demeaned by this, but I'm going to love you. You see, if somebody is being condescending to you, do not return it. Show them that you're not impressed. Tell a joke, smile, don't repay evil for evil, but do not acquiesce to the humiliation. Be concerned about them. Why are they doing that in the first place? I mean, what's wrong with a high school kid who's pushing some other kid and pinching his neck against the wall? What does he have to look forward to in his life probably? That kid, if he doesn't turn it around, probably a household of abuse, probably divorce, probably maybe jail. Who knows what's coming? And who knows what Jason might have done by being kind to him in return to save that kid's life, to change the entire course of direction for that person. We are to love our enemy. It is loving, by the way, when sometimes we have to turn our enemies in. It's loving for an abused woman to call the police. There was a mom in Los Angeles who her son was the bully in the school, and he was stealing the kids, you know, milk money and stuff, and she turned him in to the school, and he got in a lot of trouble, but it was loving for her to do that, even though it was her own son. We are to respond to people the way Jesus would, which is to say to stay on mission and be concerned about the souls of others. And this is why we need to respond faithfully. In verse 44 again, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I have never met a happy, vengeful person. In my time in ministry, I've seen a lot. And I've never met one who is happy or enjoying the way they're living their life. I've never seen happy, manipulative people. I've never seen happy, bitter people. I've never seen it. Those things, they infect us. I've never seen a humble, resentful person either. You know why? Because if you have this kind of resentment and bitterness towards somebody else, when you live with that, you have to act like you've done nothing wrong. And bitterness makes you self-righteous, and you won't remember who God is, and you will not be faithful. Instead, you will just be angry and more angry, and you will lose friends, and people will want to talk about you because that's all that you talk about. What is it that you're concerned about in your life? There's a movie. It's a great movie. And in it, there's a theme about vengeance. It's kind of funny in the movie. But when you take a look at the movie in another way, and you realize that until the very end of the movie, someone's just in vengeance, and all he has to say is, I'm going to look at the six-fingered man and say, hello, my name is Indigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> he kills him. At the end of the movie, he says, I've been in the revenge business so long, I don't know what to do with my life. He wasted his life. I ruined that movie for you just now. <laughs> I do that to movies. You don't want to waste your life just being bitter and angry because somebody hurt you or somebody did something wrong to you. You need to be concerned about the soul of the six-fingered man or whomever it is. 
Paul tells us to show consideration to all, knowing that we were once the same, because you know what? There's probably somebody who's mad at us for something we did to them. Maybe we don't even know we did it. Pray for your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for these people. Pray for the people who hurt you. They're looking at a long, sad life, perhaps, if they really are mean people. And consider their own good and their own salvation because this is what matters. And verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You see, this is how God is. He is good to us so, we, so that we have an example of how to be good to others. We are to be like Him as His children. And see, the idea of retaliation people do, it's just a regular thing. There's nothing special about that. It's something that people do and it's wrong. We are to have a higher standard. Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What that is is the highest standard. You're never going to be perfect. You can never reach that. But it means there's never a place where you're ever going to grab the brass ring, where you've just finished, where you've become this. There's always a place to grow in your faith. And we won't reach that higher standard. That's why we have a Savior, because He reached it for us. But it's a standard we can always strive for. So let me ask you this. Who are you bugged at? today. A lot of people try to bring a lot of other stuff into this passage. You know what? It doesn't preach pacifism. It's not what it's about. The text is talking about relationships a lot more than it's talking about government. It doesn't apply to a lot of things people try to add into it. You know, protection of your family is something that the law allowed. Exodus 22.2 says, if a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. You can defend your family. But verse 3 says, but if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed, meaning somebody comes in and you go after him the next day. Well, now you are, and kill him, then you are guilty because that's vengeance and retribution. It should have gone to the court. It's not against self-defense. This passage is not talking about an attack where you don't ward somebody off. You need to do that. That's not what this is about. This is about regular relationships with people and those who would persecute us, whether they are powerful people or just other people who for whatever reason are doing that. It's not just about law enforcement or getting sued. If you had any of those, I don't, I've never been sued. I've had my run-ins with law enforcement. Most of the time, they're right. There's a couple of tickets I've had where I'm like, I don't know. But I would have been stupid to just fight it because I'm probably wrong. In fact, I'm definitely wrong on him. It's like I, I told the guy once, I said, you know, we turned around and everybody was doing the same thing I just did. Like we're just watching every person break the law. And I said, they're all doing it. And he said, yeah, but I pulled you over. I guess that's it. That's the end of the argument. <laughs> okay. When was the last time you ever got in a fight, a real fist fight? You know, for most of us, I'll bet at school, maybe like grade school. Like sixth grade. I think I got in a fight with Brandon Newcomb in the sixth grade. It had something to do with playing baseball, but it really had something to do with Kaylee Turner, who we both liked. That's, <laughs> that's what it really had to do. And the last time I remember even eating that situation, I was a senior in high school, and I was in a 7-Eleven, and I'm filling up my big gulp, like you did back then. And, and I'm holding it up against the thing, and this other guy sets his cup down, his big gulp, and he forces it in there and just starts to fill it up itself, and he goes... You don't have to hold it and calls me a real dirty name. And I said, it's all right, I'm strong enough to lift it. 
See, I escalated it. He turns around and he throws a punch at me, but it was really slow. And I took my hand and I went like this and I knocked it away and I said, wax on. <laughs> Just came out of my mouth. He laughed. The guy working at 7-Eleven laughed. But you know what? Otherwise, when was the last time? You know, this passage, you probably have not been punched recently. Maybe some of you. So don't worry about trying to find the little tiny things, well, it doesn't really apply because I haven't really hit somebody or been hit, it does apply because there is somebody who's not nice to you and there's somebody who you're not nice to also. And it applies. And the worst thing that you can do is try to escalate or create a vendetta because it will ruin you. Abraham Lincoln said, I will not let another man destroy my life by making me hate him. It's a good line. This text is about how we confront those who are giving us problems. You trust God and you respond in faithfulness. And you might feel a rage that comes with injustice, but remember in your faithfulness to be angry, but don't sin. Instead, be wise. Have self-control, a fruit of the Spirit, with whatever response you have. Find out what's true. Maybe you don't even know. You will always be happier when you are right with God in your life, even when somebody else is doing you wrong, even when you're getting ripped off, even when there is injustice that you are facing. And if you've been wronged by somebody and you're just so upset, do this. Take a moment and remember that no matter what the circumstances are, God is on His throne. He has not left His throne. He has not abandoned you. And vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will take care of everything in the end and make everything just. Your job is to love and to be faithful to Him. Jesus knew this. And it was hard. This is a hard teaching. But Jesus would remind us of something. He would say of Himself that He is not of this world. He says this to Pilate, I'm not of this world. Your system doesn't work here for me. And by that, he doesn't mean I'm not of this planet. He means I'm not of this system. He means that the kingdom of God is run differently than things in this system. He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But, my, but now, my kingdom is from another place. He did things in a different way. And the instruction he gives us on, to his followers it goes against the system of this world, the system of this world that says you get revenge. You hate those who hate you. You escalate. You wipe them out. You incinerate. Jesus says, no, that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. There's a different way. And the instruction that he gives us goes against that system. So whenever you're thinking of somebody who you might be fighting with or when you think of how you should respond with being attacked. Think of what it means to be faithful. Think about that person's soul. Jesus wants them to be saved. He wants a lasting peace that is genuine, authentic, and unquestioned. Doing these things and responding in a wise way, you might bring conflict up right then. It might bring things to the surface, and you might have to resolve it. Good. Get it resolved and live in peace. Don't bury it and let it fester and become something that it never was. That's the kingdom of God, a lasting peace. 
Jesus wants everybody to know who he is and he wants us to have that relationship with him. So your takeaways for today in your notes is be wise when you respond to an enemy. Do you have a problem with somebody? Are they hurting you? Ask God for wisdom and don't lash out or pay them back. Ask what's the wise thing to do. It's the greatest question there is, what's the wise thing to do? It's much better than what is right, what is moral, what is ethical, what is wise. Do that and ask God for that wisdom. He promises to give it to you. And secondly, have a kingdom mindset when dealing with every circumstance. Pray for your enemy and care for the souls of everybody you know. Be humble. Maybe you are the one who has done something to offend. Lots of times when we're mad at somebody for doing something, they're responding to something we did in the first place. And it's just escalating. And it's escalating not with our action, but with our inaction. Maybe you're the one who's done something to offend. Be open to that. Maybe you're the bad guy and need to apologize. Do it. And be faithful. You'll always be happier when you are right with God. And the way of the kingdom is always best. And it's usually different than the culture's expected response. And when we're like Jesus and we respond to things in unexpected ways, you know what, it changes the world, not just for us, but the people in our relational world, the people who see us. The people who see, how did you respond that way? I want that. And you say, I did because I'm, I learned it from my Savior. His name is Jesus. And Jesus responded that way to you. When you hated him, he died for you in your place. Before you even knew you needed a Savior, he died for you. And he rose again. And whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is the message for all humanity that they need to hear. We have this great role to bring everlasting peace to those who put their trust in Jesus. And nobody's exempt from that, even our enemy. Let's love them. And let's be wise and be faithful and be like Jesus in every way we can. I'm going to pray and uh, I'm going to introduce the communion at this time. We take communion because we want to remember this, that Jesus, in fact, did die for our sins. So if you're an usher for communion, go ahead and, and grab that. That Jesus did die for our sins. He shed his blood for us. But whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So we're going to hand it out and take the bread and the cup and hold on to it and pray and do some business with the Lord. Maybe there's somebody specific you're thinking about right now. Maybe there's not. Well, thank God for that. Maybe you need to ask God for wisdom. Maybe you need to treat somebody better. Now's the time to think about it. This is a reminder that Jesus treated us with incredible love and sacrifice when we didn't deserve it. He died for us, and he rose again on the third day. And we celebrate that in communion. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for all the things that you have given us here. And I pray, Lord, for us in a world where things are tough, in a world where not everybody is nice, where there is injustice of all kinds. I pray that we would be known as a people who are wise, as a people who can bring peace, as a people who can keep the main thing the main thing and remember that what matters is people's souls and that Jesus died for the world so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, that our mission is to make disciples of other believers who are more like 
to become more like Jesus so that this gospel can continue. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us into that. We pray that we would consider every person you've put into our life, whether they are more powerful than us or weaker than us or we just think of ourselves one way or the other. Lord, forgive us whenever that is sinful and help us to see others the way you see them. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. We ask your blessing on the bread and the cup as we prepare to take this together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.